Amen. I would encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want us to pray and ask the Lord for his help. Father, as we come to you, as we open your word, just as the song just said, would you cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority? God, would you help us to see that, to be changed by it, that you would be glorified, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are in Daniel chapter 4, the last story in Daniel that has to do with King Nebuchadnezzar. We first met Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1 when he had begun to attack Jerusalem and carry off some of its citizens and some of its noble citizens at that, among which were Daniel and his three friends. In chapter 2, We were told about a strange dream that Nebuchadnezzar had about a statue, troubled him, and ultimately through that dream was taught that his kingdom would come and go and others would come and go, but there would be one kingdom that would endure forever. Certainly that is God's kingdom. Last week in chapter three, we find yet another statue, maybe encouraged by the dream, the statue of the dream in chapter two, but nevertheless a statue that was not a dream, but a reality, a statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built and had commanded for all people to bow down and worship. Well, everyone did, except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And because of that, they were cast into the fiery furnace of which God miraculously delivered them, showing that he is able to preserve his people. And here today, as we come to Daniel chapter four, we find King Nebuchadnezzar in the prime of his reign. This is likely some 20 years later after the fiery furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar is ruling and reigning. Chapter three to chapter four, about 20 years had gone by. Nebuchadnezzar had defeated and plundered many of the surrounding nations. Such plundering had only benefited Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had made this city quite the city. One of the things that were known, that were famously known was some of the hanging gardens that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, constructed for his wife, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So here we have this powerful, successful, wealthy, prominent king at the height of his reign. All is well in Babylon, we could say. Or was it? I mean, he had arrived. It's what an American dream. This was the Babylonian dream, right? He had arrived. He was successful. He was dominant. At least he thought. But think about this context through the lens of an Israelite. You see the prominence, you see the power, you see the success, you see the wealth, you see those hanging gardens, you see all of these things that this king continued to 
cultivate there in this city. And what did all of this success and power mean for you? A captive. You see, the king had taken you captive, and now he's continuing to flex his muscle over the many other nations. He had arrived, but what did that mean for you? So here we have in chapter four, this increasingly proud king and a bunch of Israelites wondering if they would know anything different ever again than the captivity in which they were living. We could say that Daniel chapter four was both for Nebuchadnezzar and for Israel and by extension for us. We say that because Daniel 4 serves as a humbling lesson for Nebuchadnezzar and a reassuring reminder to the people of God that he and he alone is absolutely sovereign over all the nations. Daniel 4 is for believers and unbelievers. Daniel 4 is to encourage the believer to persevere, to continue on in this difficult and dark and frustrating world. And it's a reminder to the unbeliever that your glory will not last. It's a call for the unbeliever to repent, and it's a call to the believer to be reassured. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. He was the ruler of the known world. He considered to himself, he considered himself to have no rival. And Israel had been taken captive and were in need of much encouragement and therefore sets the scene for Daniel chapter four. We're gonna see in this chapter how God humbles King Nebuchadnezzar. The question we need to ask at the beginning is how does the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar serve to encourage us as God's people in light of his sovereignty. I want us to consider four things today. We're gonna to read the passage, it's long, but we're gonna read it as we go, as we walk through these four answers to this question. How does the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar serve to encourage us as the people of God? First of all, it reminds us of God's position. Let's read Chapter four, verses one through three. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the most high God had done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Chapter four really begins at the end of this episode of Daniel. It's kind of like a movie's opening scene that's really the ending scene. And then the movie really goes back and traces through how that ended up being the case. I'm sure you can come up with movie examples. I spent about five seconds trying to come up with one, didn't come up with any. That's kind of how it's the setting. It's kind of starting at the ending. Here's the ending. Here's King Nebuchadnezzar rejoicing in the greatness of God. How does that happen? Glad you asked. Let's read now verses four through 18. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. 
I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to, the, to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. This time he tells them the dream. That's encouraging. I told them the dream, but they could not make the dream known. They could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and it was food for all. In it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast Flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of the heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that, may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. He had his first dream in Daniel chapter 2 and now in Daniel chapter 4. And he does, as is his custom, he has a dream. It alarms him. It makes him afraid. And he calls all of his shrinks to come help him. What does this dream mean? All of these folks he calls in and counsels and none of them could tell the interpretation of the dream. And then he remembers. Remember, this has been some 20 years ago now. Oh yeah, I remember Daniel. He's the guy. He's my guy that can tell me the interpretation of the dream. And so he calls Daniel in and Daniel comes to his aid as we will later see. What does Daniel or what does Nebuchadnezzar see in this dream? Well, he sees this massive tree in the middle of the earth, a massive tree with its top reaching to heaven. It's visible all over the earth. It had beautiful leaves, abundant in fruit, was able to feed everyone. Even the birds of the air rested in its branches and the beast of the field found refuge underneath it. But halfway through the dream, we're told that a holy one from heaven spoke and said to cut down this tree, lop off its branches, scatter its leaves, scatter its fruits. All that would remain would be a stump bound with a band of iron and bronze. And then we're told the purpose of this dream in verse 17, of which I would argue is the key verse in the entire chapter. 
Yes, that means wake up moment, right? Key verse of the entire chapter, the purpose of the dream. This is what we're told. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This was the purpose of the dream. This was the purpose of this entire chapter and I would argue the purpose of the entire book. This dream was given to King Nebuchadnezzar ultimately to humble him so that the living would know that the most high rules. And the reason I'm convinced that that's the key verse in this chapter is because it's repeated two other times in the chapter. We see it again in verse 25 by Daniel when he's telling King Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation. He's saying to him in verse 25, this is so that you, king, would know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then later when the interpretation of the dream was coming true for King Nebuchadnezzar in his humiliation, a voice from heaven in verse 32 restates that purpose again. This kingdom has departed, we're told, and you shall be driven among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Though this dream alarmed Nebuchadnezzar, it was a dream that God used in his life and by implication to those around him as a means to make crystal clear who was truly in charge. He's in essence saying to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream, you might be ruler of the known world and you might in fact be at ease in your house and prospering in your palace, but you would have none of this apart from me. You might be the ruler of the known world, but you wouldn't be the ruler of the known world were it not for me. This was a reminder to Nebuchadnezzar that he had everything that he had because of the decree of God. God is in essence saying, I am the true king, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. And as this would be revealed later on to Israel, it would serve yet as another reminder of God's faithfulness to them and encouragement to them in the midst of their captivity. Friends, even today as the people of God, we need to be regularly confronted with the reality and reminded by the reality that God is sovereign. It's not just a Christian thing that we should say every day. God is sovereign. It's a reality that should ground your very life. Friends, if God isn't sovereign, We're all doomed. You realize that? We need to regularly be reminded of that. In fact, notice the aspect. We don't really have time to break these down, but notice the aspects of his sovereignty as revealed in verse 17 alone. Notice it's a present sovereignty. Notice what he says there. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. This is a present reality. God is not reigning in some future essence, although he will, but he is reigning and ruling right now in the present over the nations. It's a present sovereignty. 
the Most High rules. Doesn't say ruled or will rule. It says rules now in the presence. It's the same is true today. God, when we look at the world and we think that the world is falling apart and this and this is happening, oh, woe is me. Friends, God is presently sovereign over all things. It's not only a present sovereignty, it's a concrete sovereignty. Notice that he rules the kingdom of men. He doesn't just rule the, 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 the realm in which we can't see. He rules over kings and kingdoms and the kingdom of men. It's concrete sovereignty. God rules the affairs of the earth just as much as he does the affairs of heaven. Notice also in that verse, it's a free sovereignty. It says that the, to the end that the, most high, that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. God's sovereignty is an absolute free sovereignty that, that reminds us that he can do what he wants to do with whom he wants to do it. And Nebuchadnezzar gets that. You see it at the end when he confesses, who can stay his hand? Who can stop this God? This is the free sovereign rule of God that we see on display here. Because I think we forget that. We think that God ought to operate within the boundaries in which we set for him. Don't fool yourself. God does not operate in the boundaries in which you set for him. He is free to operate within the boundaries and, na- and, and characteristics of his own nature. He's a free sovereign, bound to no one. And it's an exclusive sovereignty. Nebuchadnezzar was not just a pagan, he was a religious pagan. He likely saw his rise as the result of other gods of which he acted as that God's representative. In fact, he named Daniel, gave him a Babylonian name after his own God. Can you imagine being an Israelite, following the true God, being named now, renamed after the God of this king that you serve, a false God? Kind of awkward, isn't it? That's what happens. This dream is a direct slam against such a notion. God does not share his authority or his rule with anyone. And if anything this chapter does is it helps us, it helped the Israelites then, it's reminding Nebuchadnezzar as well, it's helping to reinforce the fact that in a world filled with kings and rulers, there is only one true king and one true ruler. That should say something. That should say something very clear to us about the inadequacy and failure of our idols. Friends, there's only one true ruler of your heart and life. And there is no idol that you would ever seek that could care for you and could do for you what only God can do. It's a reminder that we should submit to God's authority. Nebuchadnezzar had been given this position, but it didn't mean that he could just run wildly with it and do what he wanted. It was a restricted authority. It was a, it was a delegated authority that he had. And God would stop him. It, just remember, it reminds us of the limits of our authority, but also of the importance of recognizing God's authority. Sometimes I think that our authority, we think our authority kind of is unlimited authority. We can kind of do what we want with who we want, and that is simply not true. 
God ordains authority with him being the ultimate authority. And even if we're given much responsibility and have some realm of authority in our possession, it is a delegated authority and it is vital that we yield to his ultimate authority as we seek to execute the authority that he gives us. We could, we could apply this in many cases. Just, just take the, the home for, for a moment. If you're married, you probably already realize, and if you're not yet married, you need to realize this. It is absolutely vital in a marriage that both the husband and the wife come to understand God's authority. If you don't understand God's authority and how he breaks things down, even in the home, you're gonna have some complications in that relationship. So that's why it's critical that even as a single, you're looking for someone long-term that's going to embrace and respect the authority of God over you and over all things. You could apply that in the workplace, especially when, when God has put us into positions of authority. This is just a reminder to us that only God is the true ruler, God is the true king, and God is the true authority. Not even this king of the known world in this day had full and free reign. It's Daniel chapter four, and I would say the entire book is just an inspired declaration of the sovereignty of God. This is an inspired declaration of the fact that God and God alone has authority over all things. If you want to know what Daniel's about in a nutshell, that's it. God and God alone hold sway over all things and his kingdom will prevail and no one can stop it. But not only does this chapter remind us of God's position, it also highlights God's provision. I didn't make that rhyme on purpose, it's just the words that I picked. Highlights God's provision. While the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had served to highlight his false sense of full free reign, the false sense of power, it was a confrontation to Nebuchadnezzar's lack of recognition of God's authority. At the same time, it's an act, an extension of God's mercy. I want you to see this. This is, this dream that, that caused, <laughs> verse five, as I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. This dream that alarmed Nebuchadnezzar was to confront him, but it was also an extension of God's mercy. God could have let this proud, arrogant king just continue to go in his pride and die as a proud man. Or he could have just taken him out right then and there. He does neither. Instead, he gives him this dream and then he gives Daniel to interpret it to him. That's grace. That's mercy. It's a kind mercy of God that he does this. Let's pick up now in verse 19 where Daniel begins to give the interpretation. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. So not only did the dream alarm Nebuchadnezzar, it now alarmed Daniel. Notice, the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant and which was food for all under which beast of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time passed over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So Daniel confirms to Nebuchadnezzar what he's already thinking. You're the tree. It's like Nathan and David. You're the man. Here, you're the tree. You're the tree, Nebuchadnezzar. He probably already got that point, but that's what he's confirming now. And you're gonna be cut down. Not totally destroyed, there'll still be a stump. You're gonna be cut down. And you're gonna become like a beast for seven periods. Seven years, or we know that in the Bible, the seven is the number of completion. So maybe just be referencing a time of completion. But the point is, is that you're going to become like a beast until you know that the most high rules. <clears throat> and then notice what Daniel does next in verse 27. He goes from being an interpreter to a preacher. Again, he gives him the interpretation and then, then he adds some commentary. He adds a little exhortation. Remember, he's speaking to the king of the known world. He said, therefore, king, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. And this is what he says, repent. Repent, king. Turn from your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. It's like he's read Ephesians 4. Put off these things and put on these things. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there perhaps may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Notice Daniel, in this presence of this wicked king, in captivity, is compassionately pleading with him to repent. Notice the compassionate boldness that Daniel has here. It's an amazing gift of God. This compassion for him, this care for him, this concern for him, and yet his boldness to stand firmly on the truth. May God give Churches filled with these kinds of people. Compassionate boldness. That we would not be obnoxiously stupid, but we would be compassionately caring for the people of this world, telling them what is true. This compassionate courage that we see in Daniel's life. He exhorts the king to repent. 
He tells the king that there's time to keep this from happening, perhaps. King, if you would just stop being bad, (laughs) stop doing these bad, stop oppressing people and do justice and righteousness. Perhaps God may lengthen your prosperity. So what does the king do? Let's keep reading verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Even though Nebuchadnezzar heard the dream, he had the dream, He's now heard the interpretation and now given an exhortation from Daniel. He continues on with no change. You see that? As month by month went by, he probably began to think, well, this dream doesn't look like it's gonna be fulfilled. So that 12 months has gone by now with no change from King Nebuchadnezzar. A year goes by after hearing the interpretation of the dream, after being exhorted to repent, a year Think about the mercies of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. He gives him a year. God's word had come to Nebuchadnezzar and God's word had been ignored by Nebuchadnezzar. Friend, let this be a great lesson for us. When God confronts our pride and sin, we must listen and we must heed his word. It's actually an act of God's mercy that he warns us and gives us opportunity to repent. And I just ask you, has God been been dealing with you about something specific? Calling you to repent of something in your own life and you've just been blowing God off? It's dangerous to do that. God confronting you, calling you to repent, maybe not through a dream, but through his word, through other people speaking truth into your life or just convicting you of sin in your life and you're thinking to yourself, I'll do that later. And don't delay in responding to God and do not presume upon the patience of God. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. And friend, the word to you would be simply this. Maybe you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ before. Maybe you haven't. Either way, you understand now today that you're a sinner and you're going to be condemned because of your sin before a holy and righteous God who has every right to do with you as he pleases. And yet he has extended mercy to you by giving his son to come into this world and live a life of perfect obedience and yet die a death that sinners deserve. 
upon a cross so that whoever would trust in him, believe in him, would have all of their sins forgiven. All of their sins would be forgiven if you'd simply believe and embrace him by faith and understand that this is the kind mercy of God on your behalf. If you'd look to him and trust in him, friend, the truth of the gospel is this, you would be saved. Your sins would be forgiven. And you're not promised another breath Friend, why would you delay upon that? Why would you presume upon the kindness and patience of God if he's confronting you today in your sin and calling you to repent, calling you to turn from your sin and to trust in his son? Why would you say, I'll wait a little longer? Friend, don't do that. If you're here today in that state, trust Christ right now. Believe in him. Embrace him by by faith and be saved. And Christians, if you're here today and you're struggling in sin and you're, you've just been putting off repentance. Don't put repentance off. Don't delay. Because as we will see, God does to Nebuchadnezzar just as he said he would. Which leads me to the third point. It teaches us about God's power. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven among men, from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Quite a change in this successful king's status. This powerful, successful, world-renowned king is now reduced to a wild, beast-like creature eating grass in a desperate need to visit the salon to take care of some nails and hair. And his humiliation is now complete. See, the fulfillment of this dream is not only further proof that God keeps his word, even to pagan kings, but it's also quite the display of his power. That God, in an instant, could take this powerful king and drive him to his knees and put him out of his mind so that he's eating grass like a wild ox and acting like an animal. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar said it best. Verse 37, the last verse. Those who walk in pride, trust me, he is able to humble. He is able to humble because God is amazing in his power. There's a well-known story about Louis XIV, also known as Louis the Great. He was king of France from 1643 to 1715. One of the most famous and longest reigning monarchs in French history. It was told that when Louis XIV was approaching death, he had planned his own funeral to be just as spectacular and magnificent as his court because it was known to have such a great and glorious court there in France. And so he's getting sick and he begins to plan his own funeral to be just as amazing as he was. So the king instructed a priest by the name of Massillon that upon his death, 
He was to lie in state in a golden coffin at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. He further instructed that at his funeral service, that the entire cathedral was to be completely dark, lit dimly by one and only one candle positioned above the extravagant coffin that would be allowed, uh, that, that would be in awe by the people of the late king's presence even in death. So even in death, King Louis XIV wanted to be known as great. All the lights were to be off except the one candle on his coffin to remind the people of how just, just how great he was. When Louis XIV died, Massillon did exactly as the king had instructed. At the funeral, Thousands waited in hushed silence as they peered at the exquisite casket that held the mortal remains of their monarch illuminated by a single flickering candle. But as Massillon began his funeral oration, and to the surprise of all, he slowly reached down and he snuffed the candle out representing the late king's greatness. And then in the darkness, he proclaimed to everyone there, Only God is great. Only God is great. And that's in essence what God was doing to Nebuchadnezzar. He was snuffing him out, saying to him, only I am great. Reminding the people of Israel, only I am great. Only I am the one truly of praise and devotion and worship. And let this be a reminder that God has the power to humble even the greatest of men. And if he can humble even the greatest of men, he can certainly humble the rest of us. God will humble the proud. We're told one day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the, to the, to the glory of God the Father that Jesus is Lord. And you will either bow in humble adoration and reverence as a follower of him, or you will either bow in disdain and frustration, recognizing his lordship and understanding that you will be cast away forever in eternal punishment. God will humble the proud, and he can snuff us out just like we would snuff out a candle. And for him, it's nothing. But lastly, this passage reminds us it's in. It it encourages us to declare God's supremacy. So after Nebuchadnezzar had been truly humbled and made to be like an ox, we see in verse 34 the change. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride 
He is able. He is able to humble. Two notable things quickly about Nebuchadnezzar. Through this humility, he had gained, first of all, a right perspective. He says he lifted his eyes to heaven. Until then, the only place his eyes were looking were to himself. And though it had required God bringing him to such a low point, Nebuchadnezzar now had a right and clear perspective. It took Nebuchadnezzar a long time and through much humiliation to come to this point, but it seems that this is exactly where God has brought him. And it often takes being truly humbled for us to see God for who he truly is and for our need of him to become real. Nebuchadnezzar's perspective had totally changed, but not until he had been brought to the end of himself. Friend, though we don't, we don't need to be made like an animal to see God, it is true that until you see yourself for who you truly are and until you see God for who he truly is, you will not walk in humility. And friend, I would just say to you, don't, Wait until God completely lays you bare because he will. Look to the Lord today. Where might your eyes be looking? Are your eyes looking to heaven? Are your eyes seeing God for who he truly is? Or are you looking around at all you've accomplished, all you've done? Are your eyes looking to you and what this world can provide for you? As Nebuchadnezzar learned this lesson the hard way, Israel was benefiting from it as well. Because if God, if God could take such a powerful king and humiliate him and then restore him with even more glory than he had before, if God could do that with this guy, then God could do that with us. He can restore us. And while Nebuchadnezzar experienced seven periods of humiliation, Israel was experiencing it for 70 years. But the lesson was the same. Do you see God for who he truly is? Do you understand now who God is? It's as if God is saying to him, do you, do you get who I am now? And that right perspective led then to secondly a right confession. Only when Nebuchadnezzar's perspective had changed did his confession of God change. Now he was able to say with full confidence, God is the most high, his rule is everlasting, this kingdom is enduring and no one can stop him. Notice he's affirming now in verse 34 and 35, which we could spend an entire chapter or a sermon or two on in and of itself, he's acknowledging the full, free, sovereign rule and reign of God. His dominion is everlasting, his kingdom endures from generation to generation and he does as he desires and no one can stop him or say, what have you done? He declares the absolute sovereignty of God. And I would just ask you today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is this the God that you would dare defy? Is this the God you wanna play games with? Is this the God that you wanna look at one day and say, you aren't enough for me? Is this a God you would dare defy, that you would dare oppose and stay in your sin? 
Or is this the God that you would want to love and embrace and follow? Say, friend, how can he not be? How can he not be the God that you would want to trust and want to follow and want to worship? Friends, who, who would have ever thought that you and I could be encouraged through the confession of a pagan king that was made to eat grass like an ox? Who would have thought that? Nebuchadnezzar is right. He says, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And God can humble you and he will. James tells us that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And then he goes on to say, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Friend, humble yourself under the mighty hand of this sovereign God. Humble yourself before him. If not, friend, if not, you need to be prepared to be humbled. Because if you, by his grace, will not humble yourself before him, he in his power will humble you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this historical reminder through this time in Israel's captivity, this struggle. Lord, for giving us this reminder that you and you alone are God. Father, would you allow this word to affect and to shape our hearts as needed today. Father, would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to faith? Would you call us this day, O oh God, to respond in a way that acknowledges your supremacy over all things? And Lord, I pray for those in this room, and to extend it's all of us, all of us are lacking in, in appreciating and valuing your supremacy in some way. All of us ignore and, and challenge your sovereignty, O oh God. So God, would you stir our hearts and would you help us to see those ways in which we seek to exalt ourselves and seek to trust in ourselves instead of you? God, would you call us now to, to turn, to turn from our sin and to trust in you and to see you as sovereign over all because you, oh God, you and you alone are holy and worthy of praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.